Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode two of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm Paul, the host and self-titled True Crime Enthusiast, and I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining me again today. So after last week's premiere, I decided I'd come back and have another shot. I have to say first how much I did enjoy doing last week's premiere. Even all of the tweaking, recording, re-recording, re-recording again, messing about and fiddling with it, and then the editing, oh wow, the editing. It passed many an hour, but it was very, very worthwhile. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I've got to say that the response I've had from last week's premiere has been fantastic. Thank you so much for all your very honest and very positive feedback. Uh, well, good and bad feedback I've had. I don't mind any of it. I'd rather honesty and then that way you learn the areas that you have to address and you know what you're doing right against what you're doing wrong. I've had a couple of minor points raised and some very welcoming advice and I've taken these on board. As I've said, this is still a learning curve to me, but big thanks to everyone who's listened in and shared last week's episode and who's gotten in touch. Your support means the world. The true crime community really is a friendly and helpful bunch and it's so lovely being a part of the Podden family, which is a fantastic hashtag and I love it by the way. Now I didn't have time to get this into last week's episode, but the true crime enthusiast has recently collaborated with a fantastic US-based podcast, The Minds of Madness, on their latest two-part episode. It's a shocking case that took place in the UK a couple of years ago, but it's been a real great team effort between myself and The Minds, and although I know the script because I wrote it, when I've listened into the episode when it's been broadcast this week, I've been blown away by what the hosts have done with it. It's been phenomenal. Please head over and check out their latest episode of the great podcast yourselves and have a listen. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. I also have the pleasure coming up in the near future of some guest pieces for myself created by some fantastic established true crime writers. I won't go into too much detail right now, but the cases coming up in future episodes are so interesting and have been so well researched that I'm sure that you, the listener, will enjoy. As always, I welcome a follow or an interaction on the usual social media. That's on Twitter as at TC underscore enthusiast. On Facebook as the True Crime Enthusiast. On Instagram as True Crime Enthusiast. Or on my WordPress blog, truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com. I'd love listeners to get in touch, either with feedback on the podcast, or suggestions for a case to cover, or just to say hi. Always take the time out to reply as soon as I can. So, the case featured on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast this week. It's a historical case, as is pretty much standard for what we cover on here from the UK, and one it's both fascinating and disturbing. It's a case I've already covered on the True Crime Enthusiast blog last year, but it's well worth checking out the blog post online concerning this case, as there it features pictures that will in no doubt convey just how horrible and chilling it is. I have tried not to sensationalise and be too graphic in description of the following crimes, but as a note to the listener, this week's episode contains descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find offensive or disturbing. It is not my intent or wish in any way to do this, and I have taken this in mind as much as possible without detracting from the case details to be able to bring you this week's episode. So with that in mind... Please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the chilling case of the Beast of Jersey. Jersey is the largest of the Channel Islands that are situated between England and France. They're the home of Jersey dairy cows and they're known for the German occupation of the island during the Second World War. It was also established as a tax haven in the 1960s which undoubtedly appeals to some people and apparently It has one of the largest concentrations of supercars on it on Earth, per square head or something, whatever 
if you're interested in that. It's not a massive island, it's certainly no Greenland, in fact it's just 45 square miles of landmass, yet it has 14 police forces. Now whenever I thought of Jersey, I was reminded of it being the setting of an old and looking back at it now, pretty rubbish TV detective series from when I was a kid in the early 80s called Bergerac. I'll never forget Bergerac, it used to be a treat if my folks let me stay up to watch it on Saturday. Check it out on YouTube if you've never heard of it, I'm sure it must be on there. And then watch videos of cats dancing or something because that's far more entertaining. More recently, however, it may be the horrific allegations of physical and sexual child abuse that stretch back over many years and that concern a former children's home on the island called Haute de la Garenne that Jersey is perhaps infamous for and makes it stick in people's minds. These allegations have led to Jersey police recounting claims of abuse for more than 100 people who've recounted horrific tales alleging physical and sexual assaults that they suffered in years gone by at the hands of staff and people connected with the home. Even famous names such as the now-revealed notorious paedophile Jimmy Savile and the late actor Wilfred Bramble, who's most famous for being the old man in the classic BBC comedy Steptoe and Son. They've been posthumously accused of attacks on people there in decades gone by. The allegations in this ongoing inquiry would be horrific enough if they were the first such evil to have blighted the island of Jersey, but they weren't. The reign of terror began for islanders in 1957. In November of that year, a 29-year-old nurse waiting for a bus late at night in the Montalabai area was attacked by a man wearing some kind of covering over his face and affecting an Irish accent. The nurse was dragged into a nearby field and sexually assaulted, being left quite severely injured and having wounds that needed many stitches. The following year, in March and again at night, a 20-year-old woman walking home from a bus stop was attacked in the parish of Trinity and had a rope placed around her neck. She too, in what was to become a signature of the attacker, was dragged into a field and raped by a man of the same description as the attacker in November the previous year. Then in July, a 31-year-old woman, again walking home from a bus stop and again in Trinity, was attacked in what had by now become the signature fashion of the offender. Rope around the neck, dragged into a field, raped or indecently assaulted. There was a gap of over a year following this attack, but then the same happened to a young girl walking home in the parish of Grooville in August 1959, and to a 28-year-old woman attacked in the parish of St. Martin's in October 1959. The latter, although indecently assaulted by the man, was able to fight him off quickly enough for him to flee startled. The former was not so lucky. Detectives noticed several recurring themes throughout each description of the attacker and method of attack given by each victim, and when pooled together, this led them to believe that they were all committed by the same man. Each victim agreed that the man was aged in about his early to mid-40s, was about 5 foot 6 inches tall, was wearing a raincoat or a Macintosh, and affected an Irish accent. Some of the victims described the attacker as wearing a rope or a cord around his waist, and he often restrained the victim by tying their hands together, sometimes in the unusual position of behind their head. All of them described the attacker as smelling musty. Coupled together with a pattern of placing a rope around the victim's neck and using the location of a field for the assault, it became clear that this was a serial attacker who became known as the Beast of Jersey. In 1960, the Beast added sinister twists to his modus operandi. He attacked indoors, he changed his preference of victim, and the attacks increased in both frequency and ferocity. In the early hours of Valentine's Day 1960, 12-year-old boy who was asleep at home in the region of Grand Vaux was awoken by a man who had climbed in through his bedroom window. 
The boy had a rope placed around his neck and was then led outside and indecently assaulted in a nearby field before the attacker fled. Then the following month, a 25-year-old woman walking to a bus stop in St. Brillard was offered a lift in a Rover car by a man claiming to be a doctor on his way to pick up his wife. She accepted and during the journey noticed him wearing a cap and duffel coat and gloves but could not make out his features due to the darkness. He drove the car into a field and overpowered the woman, punching her, threatening to kill her and tying her hands behind her head. She was then dragged out into the field and raped, then placed back into the car and driven away. However, she managed to escape from the vehicle and scream for help, but the attacker managed to get away. Now this boggled my mind. I mean, we all know the dangers of hitchhiking, right? It's odd enough getting into a car with a stranger, but would you really get into a car with a stranger whose face you couldn't see clearly? I suppose years ago it was much more common to hitchhike. I know my mum herself told me that her and her friends regularly used to hitch right home from God knows who when they'd been for a night out and think nothing of it. It's a frightening thought really that isn't it? Especially when you think of killers who've emerged from the past like the Wests or Peter Tobin who've selected hitchhikers as victims. They might be as nice as pie driving up these people but they turn to Freddy Krueger once you've got in the car. The beast struck a month later in March when a 43-year-old mother and her 14-year-old daughter, living alone in a fairly isolated cottage in the St. Martin area, underwent a horrific experience. At about 12.30am, the mother was awoken by the telephone ringing downstairs. She went down to answer it, but when she lifted the receiver, heard nothing but a click and then the dialing tone. She went back to bed, but was then awakened about an hour later by a noise downstairs. She started to go downstairs to investigate, but as she reached the bottom of the staircase, the lights abruptly went out and she heard someone in the living room moving about. In the dark, she made for the telephone to call for the police, but found that the phone lines had been ripped out. Suddenly, she was confronted by the figure of a man who grabbed her and demanded money. He was very rough with her and threatened to kill her, but left the woman immediately when he heard the daughter coming down to investigate the commotion and turned his attentions towards her. The mother took this as a chance to flee from the house and to go and raise the alarm at a nearby farmhouse. By the time she returned with help, the beast had fled and she found her daughter, who was still alive but she'd been horrifically raped in the now familiar signature. Now I know you must be blind panic and desperation and in a situation such as that you obviously wouldn't be thinking clearly but would you really leave your daughter like that or would you stay and defend her? It's easy to say I know what I would do in that situation but would you? A month later in April a 14 year old girl asleep in her bedroom in a house in the La Roque district awoke in the early hours of the morning to find the beast wearing a strange looking horrific mask looming over her. Her bedroom window was open and the beast had climbed in through it, but he took off and fled when the child screamed. And then in July of that year, an eight-year-old boy was abducted from his home in the middle of the night by the beast, who took him to a nearby field and indecently assaulted him, then led him home and left him on the doorstep. Now the attack in April was the first appearance of the mask, and it's here where I advise the listener to head over to the Beast of Jersey blog post on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog. There are pictures of the mask and the full get-up worn by the beast displayed on a mannequin after his capture, and it's worth checking out just so you can appreciate how horrific and frightening it must have been to see. When I was researching the case to write it up, a friend of mine who saw what I was researching told me it proper freaked him out, uh, so much so I believe he ran a different way home from work, which takes some believe me to freak him out. The attack stopped for the rest of 1960 following this, but they did begin again in February 1961. 
That month, there was an attack on a 12-year-old boy in the Mont-Cochon area in the now-familiar fashion, an attack on an 11-year-old boy in the parish of St. Saviour the following month, and a brutal rape of an 11-year-old girl in St. Martin's in April. All were taken from their beds to a nearby field, sexually assaulted, and then either left or returned to the house while the beast fled. By now, the beast of Jersey had been at large for over three years, and the Jersey police investigations had got no nearer to catching him, despite the relatively small size of the island and having a limited number of suspects. See, this is where, if only Bergerac were real, I'm sure Bergerac would have caught him by then. Feeling pressure from the press and the scared and angry public, Jersey police had summoned help from Scotland Yard, and it came in the form of a celebrated member of their murder squad, Detective Superintendent Jack Mannings. One of his first actions was to appeal to all islanders to turn detective, and the press were issued with a verbal identikit of the beast, which covered the points and known information about the man that police had been seeking for years. To see if anybody knew someone who fitted the parameters, I don't quite know exactly what the Jersey police had been doing up to this point, but um, that should have been done long before, it seems, really. The identikit went as follows. The beast only struck at night and up to that point had only struck on moonlit weekends between the hours of 10pm to 3am. He appeared to have an intimate knowledge of the island, particularly the eastern areas where all the attacks seemed to focus upon. He was described as being about 40 to 45 years old, about 5 feet 6 inches tall, with a moustache and of medium build. He was usually described as wearing a low thigh-length jacket or raincoat which gave off a distinct musty smell, a peaked cap and gloves. His face was always covered either with a horrific face mask or a scarf covering the lower part of it. He carried a torch with him during the attacks and his methods followed a distinct pattern. His victims were selected carefully and the usual method of entry was a bedroom window. Once inside, he was fast and silent and usually blindfolded and tied up the victim's hands. In each case, a rope was placed around the victim's necks, and they were then taken to a nearby field and suffered a sexual assault, then returned home. And the assailant spoke lots during the attacks also, with a voice that was described as soft and in an Irish accent. He had mentioned at various times having a wife, having a dead mother who had died of alcoholism. He mentioned that he had killed before, and he often made a point of saying that he had dropped either his cigarettes or his lighter. So God knows what police had been doing up to that point. I mean, Jersey's not a large island, 46 square miles in total, we said. And it stands to reason that someone would have known or at least suspected someone who matched at least in part this description. All men with a criminal record were questioned and interviewed, but the beast was still not found. The intervention of Scotland Yard was, however, effective in that there were no more attacks for two years. It made the beast go to ground. But he returned in April 1963, when he attacked a nine-year-old boy in his home in St. Saviour Parish, followed by another attack in the same parish in November 1963 on an 11-year-old boy. But then the beast went to ground again. He did return in 1964, attacking a 10-year-old girl in Trinity Parish in July and a 16-year-old boy in Grooville Parish in August. Each attack was in the Beast's now-familiar MO, but after the August attack, the Beast again went to ground. There were no more reported attacks for two years, and the hunt for him died down. In 1966, Jersey police received a strange letter from an author claiming to be the Beast of Jersey, which is re reproduced as follows. My dear sir, I think that it is just the time to tell you that you are just wasting your time, as every time I have done what I always intended to do, and remember it will not stop at this, but I will be fair to you and give you a chance. 
I have never had much out of this life, but I intend to get everything I can now. I have always wanted to do the perfect crime. I have done this, but this time let the moon shine very bright in September, because this time it must be perfect. Not one, but two. I am not a maniac by a long shot, but I like to play with you people. You will hear from me before September, and I will give you all the clues, just to see if you can catch me. Yours very sincerely, wait and see. So the letter is reproduced on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog um, blog post and it's worth heading over to check it out because then you'll see it's littered with spelling mistakes and the guy isn't the best at punctuation or spelling or grammar really. Just worth checking out. Certainly not winning any prizes for English this guy. Was the author the beast? It seemed likely because there was a savage rape on a 15-year-old girl in Trinity Parish in August 1966, exactly as the letter had promised. At about 11.45pm, the girl had got off a bus quite near to her home, and as she approached her driveway, she heard a voice coming from some bushes at the entrance. The voice told her to stand still and not to make a noise, but the girl screamed and ran in fright. She was pursued and caught by a man who overpowered her and began choking her. He kept his hands tight around her neck for a substantial period of time. Then when he was satisfied that the girl was subdued, her hands were tied behind her back and she was led to a nearby field. Here the man left her alone for a moment whilst he walked off alone up the field, so the girl began to try to flee. But the man returned and his response totally terrified the girl. He said in his Irish accent, I told you not to do anything stupid. Do you know how long it takes to kill a woman? Five minutes. Petrified into silence, the girl was then brutally raped and the attacker fled. The attack mirrored the previous ones in the series. The method and description was the signature of the beast, but this time there was a new detail to the attack. On the victim's torso, there were several odd-looking long scratches that were regularly spaced and always perfectly parallel, as though she'd been clawed with something. Following this attack, there then remained the longest lull in the series, for there were no more reported attacks for the remainder of the 1960s. Jersey police were left wondering that with such inactivity, if the man they'd hunted for so long had perhaps moved away from the island, was he imprisoned for another offence or had he even died? Or was he attacking elsewhere? They got their answer in August 1970, when a 13-year-old boy was awakened at his home in Valle de Vaux by a torch shining in his face. The beast made the boy get out of bed and took him to a field at the rear of the house. He then placed his raincoat on the ground made the boy remove his pyjamas and then indecently assaulted him. The boy was then returned home and raised the alarm the following morning at 8 o'clock, having been threatened by the assailant to remain quiet because if you don't, someone will harm your mother and father. One awful sickening thing to say to somebody that you've just attacked who's obviously so frightened anyway, just horrific. The boy was very distressed and dishevelled and offered a description of what had happened that was by now all too common. This time... The assailant had black spiky hair and a terrifying mask on. The boy also had the same scratches on his face and body as found on the victim in the 1966 attack. Again, the majority of the island was interviewed. Nearly 30,000 people in all were spoken to in the hunt for the beast, but he still wasn't caught. Police didn't know her at the time, but the man who had terrorised Jersey for so long was to have less than a year of freedom left. The night of 10th of July 1971 had started as a routine night shift for Jersey police officers John Riseborough and Tom McGinn, who were out on mobile patrol duties focused around the St. Helier area. 
At about 11.45pm, they had pulled up at some traffic lights when a small Morris 1100 saloon car shot past them at high speed, jumping the lights and driving in a very erratic manner. The officers immediately gave pursuit in their car and chased the Morris at high speeds for a number of miles on a really dangerous sounding pursuit. During the pursuit, the Morris car sideswiped several parked vehicles, drove on the wrong side of the road, even drove down public footpaths at high speed in an attempt to shake off the police. Finally, the Morris crashed through a hedge and came to rest in the middle of a tomato field where it was finally rendered immobile. It was here that police finally managed to catch up with him. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. It's terrible, I know. The two police officers, who had also wrote off their patrol car as a result of this pursuit, gave chase to the fleeing driver of the Morris on foot and managed to catch him after one of the officers got him in a low rugby tackle. The driver struggled wildly, but he was ultimately arrested and was taken to police headquarters. Now, it was only when they got the suspect back to the police station did they fully appreciate just how much of a normal arrest that this hadn't been. When in the lights of the police station, they could see clearly for the first time how the man looked and how he was dressed. The man was wearing an old raincoat, one that smelled musty, as struck both the officers. The raincoat had one-inch nails protruding from both shoulders and the lapels of the coat, and he was wearing cloth bands around each wrist that again had protruding one-inch nails. A later forensic examination showed traces of human blood covering each of these nails. He was also wearing old trousers tucked into socks, carpet slippers and woolen gloves. Now this is a strange enough sight as you can imagine, but when the man emptied the pockets of the coat, it got even stranger. Removed from the raincoat was a torch with black tape covering the front to provide only a narrow shaft of light, two lengths of sash cord, a peaked woolen cap, several empty cigarette packets, rolls of adhesive tape, and a black wig with stiff spiky hair. With mounting suspicion that they had last caught the beast of Jersey in the act, this suspicion became overwhelming when they removed the final item from the raincoat. It was a homemade, horrific face mask. The man in custody was Edward John Louis Paynell, or Ted as he was commonly known. He was a native Jerseyman who came from an affluent and respected family. He was 46 years old, was 5 feet 6 inches tall, and had sandy-coloured hair and a moustache. Paynell was a building contractor who was well-known throughout the island, and he was married with a daughter and two stepchildren. The only skirt with a criminal record he had ever had was when he served a month's imprisonment during the German occupation of the island in the Second World War, and this was for stealing food to distribute to starving families. His wife Joan had run a foster home for children called La Preference, and she'd met Paynell when he helped out there as a handyman. The children who stayed at La Preference knew him as Uncle Ted and knew him as someone who always had sweets and gifts for them. He played with them and even dressed up as Santa Claus every year to distribute presents to the children at the home. Paynell had married Joan in 1959, but the marriage was punctuated with frequent rows, although they were never physically violent. Until shortly after the couple's daughter was born, they decided to live as man and wife in name alone. Following this separation, Paynell built a sealed-off annex onto the house where the couple lived, which consisted of an office and a large sitting-room-bedroom combination, and he took himself to live in there. He would often go days without speaking to or even seeing his wife and family. Overall, he was considered a kind and considerate man who was good with children, but one who'd never let go of the Roman spirit that he'd had since childhood. He kept irregular hours and he was often found to go out fishing or walking at all hours of the night. Sexually, his wife considered him to be normal and if anything to have had a very low sex drive, although at the time of his arrest, Paynell had at least one mistress. 
So when questioned about his strange apparel and asked to explain his actions on the night he was arrested, Paynell was to give even stranger answers. He said he'd been on his way to an orgy that night and had borrowed the car to get there to avoid anyone seeing him and identifying him on the way. He was late and that's why he'd shot through the red lights. Now that's got to seem like a tall story to anyone, hasn't it really? I mean, you don't need to be Bergerac to work out that, sir. And it's a strange get-up to wear for an orgy as well, isn't it? Never go to an orgy without your musty old raincoat. Nothing gets someone's boat floating like someone who smells like they just slept in a river, does it? But why the nails in the clothing? What were they for? Paynell said they were as a defence against anyone using martial arts to attack him. He refused to explain or even say anything about the mask and wig, but it was noticed that he had adhesive tape marks on his face that matched tape that was found inside the mask, meaning he'd clearly worn it at some point that night. Again, head over and check out the pictures of this mask and the bizarre costume. It's a strange looking and chilling thing. It reminds me quite a lot of one of the masks that Leatherface wears in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, especially that bit at the end when he does that weird dance with a chainsaw. Paynell was locked up for the night following this, and police set out to search his home, by now all but convinced they'd finally had the Beast of Jersey under arrest. What they found at his home astounded them. In Paynell's bedroom was found a locked secret room that he had built. Opening it, it immediately struck police that it smelt musty. Inside the room hung several items of old clothing, including a blue tracksuit and an old fawn raincoat, all of which were heavily soiled and found to be stained with semen. Also on a shelf in there were several homemade wigs and hats and false eyebrows. There was a camera hanging on a hook and several photographs of various houses dotted around the island. There were also several items of black magic paraphernalia, a homemade altar, a quite sizable library about the occult and black magic rituals, and a very large curved wooden sword hanging on the wall. There was no doubting in police minds by now. The Beast of Jersey had finally been caught. Doesn't he sound like a delightful individual, eh? An orgy clearly isn't an orgy without him attending. Can you imagine it? Come on, are we starting this orgy or what? No, we've got to wait for Musty Ted to turn up with his big wooden sword first and hope he's bought his creepy rubber mask. Yeah, right. In the face of this wealth of evidence, Paynell was eventually charged on 13 counts including rape, indecent assault and sodomy against six victims, with all but one of them being a minor. His trial began in November 1971, where he pleaded not guilty. During the trial, it emerged that Paynell had an obsession with black magic, and with one of the most evil men in history, the French army leader Gilles de Ray, who was said to have practiced witchcraft himself, and was responsible for the horrific sex murders of many hundreds of children in 15th century France. Paynell had even proudly claimed himself to be a distant descendant of Gilles de Ray, although this claim was never proved. Perhaps the crimes of Paynell were in some way an attempt to emulate the actions of his hero, and only stopped short of committing murder. Paynell had never, and was never, to explain what motivated him to go out and commit the terrifying and savage attacks that he did. Indeed, when he was questioned about anything, he gave evasive and babbling answers and descended into talk of curses, covens and hints at black magic involvement. Otherwise, he just point-blank refused to answer any questions or told police to go and prove it. There was no question of an insanity defence working. It was, it was revealed just how cunning Paynell was and how pre-planned his attacks were. He photographed houses that he had earmarked as targets to attack children at, sometimes years in advance. This explained how he knew exactly which room to go to and how not to disturb the occupants. 
and also how to access and address the property. Paynell then kept these photographs as trophies of his crimes, all of which were found in his secret altar. It must have been a hell of a secret room, that really, isn't it, for the sounds of everything that was in there. It was also revealed the extraordinary lengths that Paynell went to to evade capture. He would wear false eyelashes as well, and he affected this Irish accent while committing his attacks. He dropped cigarette packets and gave random misleading verbal details about himself to his victims. In reality, all of these things were red herrings to lead police and keep police as far away from his trail as possible. I mean, he was a native of Jersey, and he was even a non-smoker. He would even take cars that didn't belong to him so he could uh, get to the different places he was committing his attacks in. I mean, he was a very, very cunning man. He was proud of his crimes and boastful, and he had wrote the letter to police. It was confirmed as being in his handwriting by Paynell's wife. The mask was designed not only to disguise him, but to inflict the maximum amount of terror on his victims as well, which Paynell thoroughly enjoyed doing. The nails in the raincoat were placed in such positions as to injure someone if they grabbed him. They were designed to help him get away if possibly interrupted. And in case you hadn't twigged it by now, the nails were the cause of the strange and long parallel scratches found on some of the victims. He was definitely bad, but in no way was he mad. It also emerged that Paynell had been one of just 13 men on the island who had refused to give any fingerprints during the entire search for the beast, as was the right of a Jersey resident at that time. Yes, apparently, in something that's quite mind-boggling, it was the right of a Jersey resident at the time that, if they weren't under arrest, they had the right to refuse to give their fingerprints for the purposes of elimination. So here's someone who had previous form, was often found to be going out late at night, walking or fishing or doing God knows what on his prowls round at night, who was one of 13 people who wouldn't give his fingerprints for purposes of elimination, and they still didn't get him in the frame. With all of this overwhelming evidence against him, and his refusal to confirm or deny his guilt, on the 29th of November 1971, it took just 38 minutes for a guilty verdict to be reached against him on all charges and he was taken away to await sentencing. He stood in the same court two weeks later and he stood impassive and emotionless as he was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment for the monstrous crimes. The Attorney General presiding over the court described Paynell as a cunning, hideous man who appears to show no remorse horror or emotion for the crimes he has perpetrated. Paynell was then taken away to Winchester Prison to begin his sentence. Paynell appealed his conviction and sentence in September 1972, but his appeal was unsuccessful and he was returned to prison to serve out his remaining sentence. Moving around the UK prison system, he was for a time to share a landing with notorious British serial killer Dennis Nilsson in Whitemore Prison. Paynell was released in 1991 after serving 20 years, throughout which he was described as being a model prisoner. Upon release, with some misguided optimism, he returned to Jersey when he was released, albeit briefly. Local feeling was still so strong by islanders who remembered his reign of terror, he was eventually hounded out, and he moved to live on the Isle of Wight, where he died of a heart attack in 1994. He was mourned by no one, his wife long having divorced him, and his family had completely cut him off. Since his death, there have been unsubstantiated reports that Paynell was involved in several other crimes of child physical and sexual abuse, ones that are concerned with the notorious Haute de la Garenne children's home we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Papers that were released during the independent Jersey Care Inquiry revealed him to be a regular visitor to the home, and had previously heard evidence that he prowled the halls and rooms of the La Preference home 
the one that was run by his mother-in-law and Joan during the 1960s, wearing his uh, terrifying mask. A former resident of the home in the 1960s, known only as Mr. D, gave evidence saying that Paynell had, on numerous occasions, crept into the home at night through the windows dressed in a raincoat and gloves, and that he had used chloroform to drug, to drug children and remove them from beds to abuse in his signature fashion. He had also seen Paynell prowling around when he had stayed at the La Preference home on occasion. He described it. One night I was asleep and I felt a presence in there and it was Paynell stood staring at me. He had some kind of mask on. The Paynell's house was so eerie. When we were doing the outer building you would see cats strung up and you would actually see him strangling cats. I just couldn't stay there any longer. I always sensed that Paynell was evil. You just sensed that something pure evil was going on in that place. However, Despite any allegations made posthumously against Paynell in relation to abuse at Haute de la Garenne, he was not included in the initial inquiry looking at historic sexual abuse at the home, which was called Operation Rectangle. The police file stated that there was no firm evidence to hand in the investigation that Paynell was responsible for any abuse that falls within the parameters of the investigation. Yet to myself... It would appear highly likely that Paynell had indeed committed many more crimes than he was charged with and tried for. Surely a gap of two years, four years between known attacks is too long a period for a serial rapist not to offend unless he physically can't. Was Paynell attacking during these periods still? Or was he confining himself to selecting victims from the children's homes where he was known as Uncle Ted, where no one would tell and things could be hushed up? The attacks that led to the charges Paynell was tried and ultimately imprisoned for are the ones that have been detailed here. And who knows just how many more unrecognised victims of this monster there are or were out there. Yes, he's long dead now, but the memory of the terror of the Beast of Jersey will never be forgotten. Not by police who searched for him for more than a decade, not by long-time residents of Jersey, and certainly not by his surviving victims. What then does the listener think about the case we've heard today? Was Paynell responsible for other crimes throughout Jersey apart from those that he was tried for? How did he evade capture for so long? Was it police incompetence, luck, or was he charmed by black magic? It seems easy to say now that, oh, Paynell should have been caught because it's a small island, but what you've got to remember is this is before the days of DNA and CCTV and offender profiling. Plus, he was always masked. He was very cunning. He attacked in several different parts of the island. He stole cars to get to and from the scene of his attacks. I mean, it's clear he had a personality disorder. I mean, normal people don't go dressing up in rubber masks and raping children, do they? But there's never been any record of any psychiatric assessments that carried out on Paynell throughout his imprisonment. He was never classed as insane. I think he's what's known as a psychologist's wet dream, I'm sure. What do you, the listener, think? Was Paynell mad? So many unanswered questions. I mean, is a musty smell uh, an integral part of an orgy? Don't know. So many puzzles. If you can get hold of it, I recommend the book, The Beast of Jersey, which is written by his wife, Joan. It's a bit dated now as she wrote it the year after he was imprisoned. She divorced him uh, immediately as soon as he was in prison, by the way. But regardless, it's a fascinating read. I literally just have touched upon him uh, here today in this episode. There's countless more revealed about him in the book. I just managed to glean the bits that best expressed what a scumbag he was. It's highly recommended. You can probably get it online for only a few quid now. And I do have a bit of trivia and useless information for you about it. Probably more so for listeners from the UK. 
I've got the book in my library at home and I remember vividly where I got it from because it was in an old bookshop that is next door to a candle shop that is run by the TV legend that is Bob Carroll Jeans. And yes, he still has that bloody dog spit with him. Yep, true story. God, I sound like Alan Partridge. I hope that the listener enjoyed this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It was, as always, my great pleasure to bring it to you. A full account of the case of the Beast of Jersey can be found in the archive section of the WordPress blog, which is at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com. So if you want to refresh up on the case or check out the bizarre outfit and especially the horrific masks Paynell wore, you'll find the pictures within the blog post. Also, if you don't already know what he looks like, check out his police mugshot and see if he matches your mental image um, of him. See if it surprises you. It surprised me when I first saw it many years ago now. I'll be putting up a discussion thread concerning this week's case on the Facebook group which was created following last week's premiere and which any listener on Facebook who wants to join is welcome to request to. You can find it at the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Discussion Group. Points for imagination with the title, eh? Or if you want to be in touch through the usual social media... I can be found on the usual channels as the True Crime Enthusiast or a play on that name of some sort. So we'll be back early next week with another episode. I sincerely hope you can join me because I'm very excited about the case coming next week and I look forward to bringing it to you as usual. I've been Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, and I bid you all to have a good week. Take care and I shall speak to you soon. Thank you and goodbye for now.